This message first aired on the radio on July 19, 2004. Today we're in Philippians chapter 2, and the apostle is moving on from uh, the beginning of an exhortation to the to continue that exhortation by way of example. Now, if we look at, uh, back at the first chapter, we see that his desire was to ha- see the uh, Philippians strive together for the faith of the gospel in one spirit with one mind. That's verse 27. Well, if we're going to have one mind about something, if we're all going to be minded the same way, if the Philippians and us and we are going to be minded the same way, then we have to see what kind of a mind that is uh, that we're supposed to hold. And that mind is found as the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the one thing that we'll look at here. The first thing we'll look at in Philippians chapter 2 we're going to see the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is that we will be like-minded or one-minded. Now, this is the ideal and this is the hope, and the apostle hopes that the Philippians will come into this one-mindedness, and it won't be simply an agreement among themselves or some kind of unification movement that they achieve, but that they would be truly in spirit one-minded as the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the apostle knows that's no small thing, because it turns out that he doesn't have anyone who's like-minded with him at this time. He has no one except for young Timothy. He has nobody his own age, nobody as old as he is, which is 50-60. He has nobody of his own age that's like-minded with him, but that they're all taken up with their own things. And this is one of the things you'll find in Christian service. As you begin to serve the Lord, maybe you desire to serve the Lord as a young man. You'll find that you'll have many contemporaries, and there'll be others. In fact, there can be a problem with young men in service to the Lord because they're competitive about their service, and they all want to be the number one servant. But as you get into your 30s, you'll find that uh, as men marry and set about their careers, they've found some alternative to serving the Lord to take up the most of their thoughts, and you'll find that that competition is not so fierce. Then you come into your 40s when men enter their high income years. And there you'll see that men are off on their own things and very few serve the Lord until you're in your 50s where you may find some who wish they had served the Lord and now would want to, but they're disqualified. They begin to empty nest and you find many unqualified men who might otherwise desire to do some service for the Lord, but you begin to find also that there's virtually no one who's like-minded. If you find somebody that's like-minded, what a blessing indeed that is. Well, the apostle got down to approximately zero. In fact, he did get down to zero. Now, Luke is with him, but apparently Luke's work is to chronicle the life of the apostle and to tend to the apostle and that he's not actually qualified nor called to lead in a church. And so uh, that's why Paul turns to Timothy. He doesn't turn to a young man because he wants to. He turns to a young man because we have to. But when it comes to like-mindedness, the apostle Paul found no one like-minded with him. And we'll see that here also in the second chapter. And then we're going to see something about Epaphroditus and the mind that the Philippians have and what a solid fellow he is, not that he's qualified to lead, And here here he's called an apostle of the church of the Philippians. That is that he was once sent to Paul from the apostle of the Philippians. And he's a good example, but he's not part of the apostolic company, and he's apparently not qualified to do the work that Timothy is called to do, which is to lead and teach uh, wherever it is that he goes. Well, let's look now at the beginning of this second chapter. 
and it begins with some obvious kind of statements, but they're put in conditional form. We call this rhetorical questions in order to frame our mind uh, into the subject matter with assent. If there be any, uh, if there therefore be any consolation in Christ, well, is there any comfort? This is the word for comfort. Remember, he's the father of mercies, that God is the father of mercies and the God of all comforts. So in Christ, all of these are extended to us. We could look at 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, where the comfort of God is remarked uh, uh, by the apostle throughout. In fact, it's one of the themes of the epistle there is that God comforts his own servants. So now the apostle asks this rhetorical question, if there be therefore any comfort in Christ, well, of course, all comfort or all consolation is in Christ. If there's any comfort in love, now here it says, does, does, does love, uh, does, does Christian love, and this is Christian love, this is the love of the brethren, is there any comfort uh, or is there any incentive? Is there any motivation in love? And of course, the answer to that is, of course, there is. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? And of course, the answer to that is, of course, there is all fellowship in the Spirit. If there are any bowels and mercies, that is, if there are any deep and tender affections in Christ. And of course, Christian love is wrought of deep affections and uh, deep and tender mercies, uh, mercies that fail not. So he says, now if there's any of this, and of course there's all abundance of this, verse 2, then fulfill my joy that you be like-minded. Now this harkens back to the 27th verse of the, of the first uh, chapter, where he said, stand fast together in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, that you be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now here we have repetition uh, that they would be come into a unity of judgment and of mind. Now how can we be of one mind without being psychophants of some human personality? Well, we can be of one mind without being human psychophants or a personality cult around uh, someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ by letting the Spirit of God dwell in us richly with all uh, the Word of God dwell in us richly with all wisdom and understanding being filled with the Spirit, what will happen at that point is a certain mindedness will come upon us through the power of God. And what mindedness is this? Well, first of all, it's not verse 3. It's not verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now this, as I had pointed out earlier, has specific reference to younger men. I think they're more, they have a greater tendency in Christ to resort to strife and vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, what does this mean, better than themselves? Let each each esteem one another better than themselves. Well, this has to do with their. let each one put the interest of the other person ahead of their own. This doesn't mean that I draw out some false statement and say that some fellow who's shorter than I am is taller than I am. Or that I say that some fella that is uh, less capable than I am uh, in, in facility for language, for example, is more capable than I am. Or that I somehow trick myself into thinking, well, that weak guy is stronger 
Uh, that guy who's weaker than me is stronger than me. That guy who's shorter than me is taller than me. That fellow who is not as capable in language as me is more capable than me, and now somehow try to get myself to believe that. That's not what this means at all. It's not some kind of psycho uh, trick that you play on your mind. It's not some kind of way of talking to yourself. L the love of Jesus Christ, that is Christian love, is always in accordance with Christian faith. That's why the scripture reads, and I don't think it reads all that well in the English language, I don't think it's translated that well, but in 1 Corinthians uh, the 13th chapter it says love believes all things. Well that doesn't mean that Christian love makes a man a, a fool uh, to be uh, taken in by every slight of man or wind of doctrine. It means that Christian love is always in the context of Christian faith, and that you can uh, that is not love to deny your faith. So if I certainly don't believe that one brother is stronger than I am, uh, then I, I certainly can't regard him as stronger than I am. It doesn't mean that at all when it says esteem other better than themselves. It means lay aside your own interest and take up the interest of the other party. Now this has to do with Christian kindness. It's an aspect of Christian love. But before it's ever acted out, it has to do with a mindset with a mindset and that's why he is commending here in the third verse lowliness of mind how it is that you look at the interest of others at the others uh, others agenda so maybe you have an agenda that you would like to have uh, something and someone else would also like to have something well you can subordinate your interest and uh, as long as it's in faith and in love you can assist that person in obtaining that thing or that uh, that level of achievement or success or whatever the subject happens to be. I don't care to go into a string of, of examples about that. It is the laying aside of one's own agenda and the taking up, according to faith, of the agenda of others. That is, taking up the best interest of others first and we'll see about our own interest if we ever get around to it. And you may never get around to it, but let me assure you this. If you will be like-minded, if you will esteem others instead of yourselves, the Lord will see to you uh, in ways that you would never see to yourself. And you just go out and prove that. Say, well, I don't agree with you. I, I, I'll just say, well, you'll never really know that You'll never until you prove it to yourself or disprove it to yourself. So if you want to prove yourself right and disagreeing with me, go take up the interest of others and see what you actually lose out on in life, and uh, then we'll talk about it. Here, verse 4, here, here's a summary statement of what he, exactly he's saying. Let not every man, uh, or look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, here we have, uh, it said uh, in, in verse 4, don't just look at your own things, but look on the things of other people as well. We don't need to be exhorted to look on our own things. Uh, the only time we need to be exhorted is to look on our own things is when we're meddling in the things of others. This is not talking about meddling. It's not talking about being a busybody. This is talking about looking after the interest of others. Don't look on your own stuff. Look after the interest of other people. And by the way, uh, that's not often done. Generally, when you see people working, you'll see them looking after their own interest, and I've seen it in Christian assemblies where men looking after their own interest even give bad advice to their brethren so that they can uh, acquire something or achieve something or make a little bit of money. 
so many churches are nothing other than business contact organizations. You know what I'm talking about. The, uh, those of you who are in some of these large churches that have nothing to do, hardly anything to do with the faith, you know that that's where you get your business contacts. And I assure you, I understand the value of business contacts. But that is you looking after your own things. It is not looking after the things of others. And uh, it's been a shame what I've seen in, in, among business Christian men. Uh, let me just say that. Well, verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, how are you going to have a different mind? Well, that's an obvious question. I mean, I have the mind that I've had. I've had it my whole life. Yeah, aren't you sick of it? Here's the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Uh, the mind that was in Christ Jesus was a mind that humbled itself. Willingly, he brought himself low. This is now the humility of Christ, and we're going to see a sequence here, a marvelous sequence, here in the Epistle of the Philippians, of seven steps down in his humiliation and seven steps up in his glorification. And we know that the way of the cross leads home, the way down is the way up, but it's not just the way that people tell you to be, it's the way that you are on your own. And that's what we'll see about the Lord Jesus Christ here as we look at the humiliation of Christ or his self-humility, his lowering of himself, uh, in the following verses, beginning with verse 6. So let's just read again verse 5, and we'll read it all the way through uh, to verse 11 so we can get this, the sweeping sense of the thing, and then we'll look at the humiliation of Christ, or his humbling, and we'll look at his glorification also. Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has, has also highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is the mind of Christ, and we have it here laid out as we see it externally. When Sometimes we'll see the mind of the Lord on the inside of it. As we see him in his sufferings, we'll see the cup that he drank, and we can see it on the inside. But this is now the outward uh, working of the mind that was in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's just look at it, as shall we say, top down and then bottom up. Uh, as we look at it top down, it says, who being in the form of God. Now, I know it's a big surprise to, to many people that God has a form. They think that God is some kind of gossamer and God has no form. But here he is, God has a form. He says, being in the form of God. Now you say, well, what does that mean? That, that Maybe that's just a figure of speech, the, the form of God. Well, this has to do, uh, this is the word morphe, and it includes, it has to do with all the qualities of God, but including that which may be seen. Remember that man was made in the image of God. He was made in God's image and likeness. And so you say, well, what's the form of God? What does God look like? Well, he looks like we do. He looks like we do. 
and uh, that's what uh, we or we look we, we could say well we look like him of course but when we're talking about God what's he look like well man is made in the image and likeness of God and God does not want us to have any other image of himself if he if he wanted us to have an image of himself he would have given us another image of himself and he certainly wouldn't have forbidden us to make any engraven images of things in heaven but man was forbidden uh, in the law from making any graven images. Why is that? Well, because they'd begin to worship him. And man was also commanded to execute murders, and still is, by the way, commanded to execute murders under the Noahic Covenant. Why? Well, because murder destroys the image of God, which is man. And so by man shall the murderer's blood be shed. So here he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him at the beginning here, being in the form of God the very form of God, exact representation of his being. We'll look at more of this as soon as we come back. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. So here we see the Lord Jesus Christ being in the form of God. Now we see verse 6, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now that's a an unhappy uh, translation, although uh, maybe it's the best that could be done in a few words uh, and maintain uh, the the con- conciseness, but what this means here that he uh, another another has written it this way he did not meditate a usurpation. This is the word for reckon here when we see the word thought. Uh, this is what we do. We also think. We also reckon. We consider. This has to do with the evaluative process of our minds, where we actually come to a conclusion and we conclude uh, something. When we finally do conclude, this is not the process of simply building ideas and speculations. This is the process of coming to a conclusion. And so it's rational, determinative thought. And it says here, it thought it not robbery or did not reckon uh, usurpation. He did not reckon uh, that he would he would strive after or even though he is equal with God he did not reckon a usurpation he did not decide uh, to be uh, of of uh, apart from his calling as the son of God now as the son of God uh, the Lord Jesus Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father and it was not a problem in his mind that he would subject himself or submit himself to the Father uh, he didn't lose anything by doing that, and so it didn't bother him. He didn't consider that to be less than himself and somehow of of a great loss to him in light of the grand purpose of redemption. And so he reckoned it not, uh, he did not reckon, this is the way he did not think. He did not think that he needed to exercise all that he is in order to be himself. Now, this is given to us in verse 6, so that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly took a subjective place to the Father, and he continues in submission to the Father in that place through the human history that we have, uh, that we have recorded, both past and future, in the Scriptures. And the Lord Jesus Christ proceeded out from the Father, uh, and came into the race of man, and he will abide in that subject position until all things are brought subject to him, and then he will bring all things, as it were, back into the Godhead, and uh, uh, that is the purpose and the, and the uh, uh, 
pronouncement of the Lord Jesus Christ as he uh, uh, as he willingly took upon himself this role as the servant of God being the son of God despite the fact that it was that he was it would not be a usurpation it would not be anything inappropriate uh, that he is equal with God being by the way in the very form of God so this has to do with his mind by the way and it has to do with the mind of the believer this is the mind that we're supposed to have we do not become anything less by taking upon ourselves the role of servant we become nothing less in fact you're going to see that the way down is the way up and that the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified for taking upon himself willingly not for it being pressed upon him but for taking upon himself willingly uh, this uh, humiliation that progresses on now to verse 7 he made himself of no reputation now this again is a translation that does us uh, doesn't give us the full understanding here where it says it made himself of no reputation we might think well nobody knew who he was well that's not true everybody knows who he is I don't care what John Lennon of the Beatles said about being more popular than Jesus Christ uh, they weren't and he wasn't and by the way John Lennon is dead and his grave still has the remains of John Lennon in it uh, the Lord Jesus Christ when he died that tomb opened up to show us it was empty well here the Lord Jesus Christ was not somebody unknown well not at all uh, that isn't what this means here when it says he made himself of no reputation. He didn't hide himself. He did everything out in the open. Doesn't mean that whatsoever. What it means is he emptied himself. Literally, that's what it means. It, he emptied himself. Now, some people would tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ laid aside uh, his deity. Well, that's false, and don't you fall for that. He's the God-man. He never wasn't God. And, and these that say, well, in his humanity, he's this, and in his Godhead, he's that. Well, listen here, he's the God-man. He, he, he was never in his humanity without being God Almighty. And uh, well, there was a time before his incarnation where he's God Almighty without being a man, but there'll never be that time again. He is God at all times. He is man now forever. And he's the perfect man, and he is the federal head of a new humanity but he didn't lay aside any of his deity in fact the best thought here when it says he emptied himself is that he veiled his glory with flesh he veiled it he he put a cover over it he he didn't let it show now at the mount of transfiguration he let it peep out and uh he shone as uh, all the brightness of the shekinah glory and uh he his his glory just peeped out through his flesh and he he shone with great brightness and as he came down from that mount of transfiguration he told those who were with him peter james and john don't you tell anybody about this until after i'm risen out from among the dead and then they began to wonder among themselves what's he mean risen out from among the dead but they sure didn't tell anybody about that until he was raised out from among the dead and then john said well we beheld his glory glories of the only begotten of the father filled with grace and truth and and uh, peter also said that uh, we well we 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 heard a voice from heaven and we saw his glory well they did see his glory uh, they saw the lord coming in his kingdom not many days hence just as in the epistle as in the gospel of luke the lord told them they would they saw he's, they saw him coming in his kingdom because they saw him transformed above uh, uh elijah and moses 
and they saw who he was, the very, very God of very God. So he veiled his glory as a man in flesh. And that's what it means to say here he emptied himself. And then he took upon himself the form of a servant. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Well, now he's the servant of God. In fact, in in Acts chapter 2, he is called the Holy Servant Jesus. He's God's servant to to the world that, that God loved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and he sent him in the form of a servant. And and by the way, uh, uh, the form of a servant was not something that was impressed upon him. Here, look at this mind. By the way, his emptying of himself was not also enforced upon him. He made himself. He emptied himself. Nothing was stripped from him. He emptied himself. He veiled his glory. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Now that was his own that was his own decision that was something he did willingly he took upon himself the form of a servant god's servant and therefore was made in the likeness of men end of verse 7 made in the likeness of men now he was in the form of god but he was made in the likeness of men and he he humbled himself to be born of a woman what humility this is very god a very god who created the the, the heavens and the earth and the woman who bore him humbled himself to be born of that woman and uh, made in the likeness of man. Here's, here's one who, who created man, made man in the likeness of God, and now humbled himself to become like unto man. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did that for a purpose. He did it for the benefit of man. It certainly didn't benefit the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't glorify the Lord Jesus Christ more than he was glorified with the glory that he had before the earth was. In fact, in in John 17, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Now glorify me with the glory I had with thee. There's no greater glory than God actually has. We can't add to God. We can only acknowledge God for who he is. After all, he's God. And we, we, we throw it around maybe because we uh, talk about God uh, often, we throw around, uh, and we can only talk about him in human terms because we're human beings and therefore limited, but I think we throw around accolades about God as if somehow by saying them we add something to him. When I say the best thing I can say about God, it still beggars God, and it didn't add anything to him. I can't add anything to God. All I can do is demonstrate my own sensibility by saying every good thing I can possibly imagine about the Lord Jesus Christ. I just prove myself to you and commend myself to you as a sensible person to be able to say uh, glorious things about the Lord Jesus Christ. That just shows me sensible and trying to be right. Well, I, I I can't get there because I can't say enough about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here, uh, now he, on the other hand, uh, didn't do that. He had a different mind. He had a mind to serve and he had a mind to save. He had a mind toward others, the benefit of others, and it did not take away from him a bit. And that is the mind, the only mind, that the Christian is to have. That is the mind that God has given you if you will let it be. And and that is what uh, the apostle is exhorting here the Philippians have this kind of mind now here he was made in the likeness of man now verse 8 and being found in fashion as a man he further humbled himself he continued to humble himself in his humility so maybe you've already humbled yourself and if you have you know what I'm talking about 
Well, in your humility, humble yourself more. That's what he did. And here he said, here it says, uh, after he was made in the likeness of men, we have verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, that is, being fashioned like a man, finding himself, right, that same mind that he had, the same mind that he had in becoming him a man, he had as a man. He had as a man. The, the Lord Jesus Christ had the mind of God that has the mind of God. He didn't have the mind that you have, naturally. He has the mind of God. And here it is. Uh, he, finding, being found in figure or in fashion, this is the word schema, and uh, uh, here it is now, he's he's as a holy man, and, and that this, of course, is called the hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't somehow less man or half God, half man. He's the God man. He's holy God, holy man. Now, as such, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ is called in John chapter 1, the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten of the Father. Now, this word only begotten means he's the unique one or monogenes, the only one of his kind. There is not another of the kind of the Lord Jesus. He's not one in the highest class. He's one in his own class. He is the God-man. And this, of course, is uh, unique to him. And that's what that word means, monogenes, one of a kind. It means unique. He's the unique one. And he's not. he's like us in that he's a man, but he's not like us in the way that he's a man. He's like us that he became fully a man, but as a man, he's not a man like we're men. He's the perfect man, and we aren't the perfect men. And he's the God-man, and we're not the God-man, and we're not going to become God-men. And it's the lie of the devil uh, that God has a different mind than this. The, the lie of the devil was that God wanted to keep us from being equals with him. That God has some kind of a stingy mind, uh, that, God has some kind of, that God is some kind of worried fellow like you are. Oh, where he's afraid somebody will catch up with him and surpass him. Well, well, God's not afraid of that. God doesn't have that petty, jealous mind. Here's the mind that God has. He has, he has a very comfortable and confident mind. As you can see, he has a mind. The Lord Jesus Christ has such a mind that he will humble himself without taking anything away from himself. Uh, he doesn't need to be uh, 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 accorded accolades by you and me or seen by you and me to be something to add anything to himself. That's why I say when we acknowledge him for who he is, we just show ourselves to be sensible and knowledgeable people. We don't add anything to him. He's very different than you and me in that sense then, isn't he? This is a mind you don't find. This is not the mind that says, I am the greatest, I'm the best. This is the mind that is the best and says, I'm here to serve. Uh, and and w whatever it is you need, I'm becoming that to you. I am becoming who who you need. And of and of course, this is who God said to Moses He was. When 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 God told Moses, "I am who am," that's what that meant. It meant I am becoming everything you need. And we need a savior. And here he is becoming a savior. He because he took upon himself the the form of a servant and then uh, was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man. Verse eight. He humbled himself as a man and became obedient to whom? To God the Father. Unto death. He came obedient unto death. Now he this is something that was in his mind. He decided to die. Nobody took his life from him. He decided to die. He came to die. 
So he said in the garden, Father, what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? It's for this reason I came. So I'm not going to say deliver me this hour. Now he said that in the hearing of those who were with him, except they were sleeping. But we have it recorded in the scripture. And he said that so we'd know it. That's why we have it written in the scripture. What shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? No, I'm not going to say that because this is why I came to this hour. And then he also said, Father, if there's a, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, why did he say that? He didn't say it because he wanted the cup to pass. He, he said that so we'd know that if it was possible, the Father always heard, heard him, it would pass from him. But it wasn't possible. There is no alternative way to save us. It took the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who became obedient unto death. Not only that. Not only did he become obedient unto death, but he didn't select he did not select the best of deaths. He selected the worst kind of death. I am a person who thinks about dying. Now I know that there are those in the in the world who tell you that that's morbid and so forth and so on, but the scripture tells us the consideration of dying, to know the time that we have, and to think about dying, is an important aspect of life, and it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting, because you have a serious mind at a funeral, and you don't have a serious mind at a banquet. And when I think about dying, I always think, well, it'd be nice to have some kind of pleasant and honorable death, and sometimes I even think about the funeral that I might have, that might be had afterwards, and uh, then I think about all the people that might want to show up that my wife would be upset with and maybe not even let them in. But, uh, well, we, we kid around only a little about that, but we think about that. But look at the Lord Jesus Christ's death. It was the worst kind of death. It was the death on the cross, the death that no one respected. It was the most pathetic, horrible kind of death anybody could die, not only in the in the hideous consequences of its punishments, but in the notorious reputation that it had among men. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself even to the last breath. This is the mind that was in him. My, what a Savior we have. I'm overcome with the thought of it. Let's just take a break. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. So Philippians 2, 6 through 8, seven steps down. Now, Philippians 9 through 11, seven steps up. The way down is the way up. The way of humility, the way of the mind of Christ, is the way to the glory and glory with Christ. And, of course, now we have verse 9. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him. Now here, this is the, high, this is the most intense form and the most extreme form of exaltation. This is God has highly exalted him. No one will be exalted above the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that no one will also, if for him to be highly exalted, or the most exalted one, no one will ever be exalted equally to the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in his mercy and in his great grace toward us and his great power toward us desires that the Lord Jesus Christ would lead many sons to glory. And notice that if we'll follow in his train as the song sings, this is the host of captivity captive, who will be one of those many sons to glory that he leads. It is the desire of God in the exaltation of Christ that it will bring more glory to him if he has glorified sons that he brings to glory. After all, it's one thing to attain glory. It's another glory to lead others to glory. And so this more glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. But here God has ex highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. 
And what is that name? That is the name Jesus. Here it says that at the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the name of Jesus. Now, you can name your son Jesus or Jesus or whatever you want, but that's not the name that's above every name. The name that's above every name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And and it's been given to the Savior. That's what Jesus means. It means Savior. And he is the Savior of mankind. He's the first and the foremost. And he is the federal head of a new humanity. He is the only one of his kind. And he has the name. Where And, and we have the word here, wherefore. How is it that he gets the name that's above every name? Now, this is humanly speaking. Uh, this is this is by the way the name of things that's above all created things. Uh, God made man, uh, made the man Adam, called him Adam because he made him out of the earth, and then he gave to Adam the privilege to name everything. And uh, of course, the one who names everything is above all the things that he names. And Adam named all the animals that that God presented before him. God, and Adam gave names to all those animals, and it was a meaningful name. And, uh, and and Adam, of course, being above all the animals, had dominion above all the animals and was exalted above all the animals. But here the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted above every creature. And we're going to see about how exalted he is right here in this passage. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Uh, in, uh, uh, in heaven, knees in heaven. Say, well, what, what kind of knees are there in heaven? Well... We know that angels, for example, are provided oikaterions when they need them. They're spirit creatures. They have bodies that they take when they're emissaries here below. When angels appear to men, they appear in the form of men, according to their oikaterion or heavenly bodies. And uh, uh, but these angels uh, will uh, that are these that are in heaven will bow. Uh, the angels will bow and uh, from the heavens. The birds will bow from the heavens. All in the heavens will bow. Resurrected men in the heavens, taken up into the heavens, will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one above all things. You say, well, that's good for them, but not me. Well, then you're one in the earth. You're one in the earth. Here it says, in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, in earth. In earth. Well, you're in the earth. You're going to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Might as well do it now. Might as well do it now when by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of eternal life. Rather than being made to do so uh, when you are faced with eternity uh, in the lake of fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, why not now? Because one day uh, the devil and his angels also will bow the knee. You'll bow the knee, you and earth, all animals, every creature, great and small, uh, will acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only things in heaven, not only those in heaven, not only those in the earth, but also those under the earth. You say, well, what is this, those under the earth? Who are those under the earth? Well, uh, the Scripture teaches us that when we die, we go into the grave. There are those that are left there under the earth. You say, oh, come on now. That doesn't literally mean that. Well, it literally says it. And let me tell you something further. God has locked up angels under the earth in something called the abyss. And we have some evidence, pretty good evidence in my opinion, to believe that that abyss is under the sea. And we know there'll be no more sea at the, in the coming age when the Lord Jesus Christ creates a new, a new creation. Won't have any sea. Now, why does he leave it out? Well, because that sea is the leftover vestiges of the destruction wrought by Satan when the earth became without form, 
a tohu va bohu, without form and void, as the King James reads in Genesis 1, verse 2. And darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Where did those waters come from? They came from a destruction wrought by the one who was supposed to keep the earth when Satan and his angels fell. Well, uh, these uh, some of these came into the race of men before the time of Noah's flood. And uh, it says they, they, they knew the daughters of the man Adam, and they came in unto them, and they bore to them, and they uh, brought all kinds of uh, destruction as they erupted into the humanity trying to destroy the seed of the woman. And God had nothing to do except, uh, could do nothing except he saw that Noah was perfect in his genealogy. Noah was, had an integrated genealogy that was still pure, and his sons and their wives, and he spared those eight, and he destroyed that ancient world uh, by way of water. And he set up his covenant with the whole earth while there's going to be seasons. And while there's uh, daytime and nighttime, uh, that covenant stands. There's, there's a time coming when there won't be any nighttime. There's a time coming when there won't be any sun. Earth won't need a sun. The Lord Jesus Christ will provide that, uh, the services of the sun himself, directly. And uh, there, that is coming in the new creation. But while there still is a day and night, seasons, then that the covenant that God made with Noah and his sons and, his, and, and their wives, that is every living man, woman, child on the earth, uh, the covenant that he made uh, with them stands. You're under it today. I don't care who you are. The, 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 the leaders of this earth are under that covenant today. And it requires, by the way, the execution of murderers for destroying the form of God. Well, when these angels sinned and came into the race of men and wrought the destruction required by the flood, every living thing except those that were on the ark, two of every creature, seven clean animals, and the eight people, then those wicked spirits we found are locked up under the earth in a place called Tartarus. This is in the scriptures. We're not going to look at it now, but there's a time coming when these who come out of the, there'll be those let out of the abyss, and then there's a time coming when these that are under the earth will also acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, because God will get his victory over all of these creatures that are that oppose him and all those who don't oppose him will happily and willingly acknowledge that he's the lord because he is the lord after all we're like i say we're merely sensible this is our reasonable service our rational thought but there's a day that the name at the name of jesus everyone everything that has life will acknowledge jesus is lord verse 11 every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of God the Father. That's verse 11. Every single one. Now, this is a marvelous day, and we, we look for that day. But what we see in this entire episode, in six brief verses of Philippians chapter 2, and maybe you'd want to memorize those. It, it'd be good to refresh your mind with this marvelous thoughts of Philippians. This is the highest and the greatest of passages, really, as far as a conciseness of writing and beauty and order and praise here 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 now is the way of success in the christian life i know there are seminars today about how to succeed as a christian well here's how to succeed you go the way of the cross there's no other way there's no other way i know that people pay good money to go to seminars trying to find out how to succeed well here it is for free you can read it in your bible you can hear it on biblestudy.net let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus but this is not so personally pointed this is corporately pointed 
this is the key to a successful church. Now, many people don't even care about a successful church, and we'll see about that a little bit later, because they only care about their own things. But you can't have this mind if you only care about your own things. You can't apply this mind if you're only concerned about your own things, because this mind has to be applied toward others. And let me assure you, friends, this is the way to glory, and it's the only way to glory. It's interesting that God has predestinated us to glory. He has given us the only pathway. We would never find it. We would never be able to make it up. We'd never be able to figure out. He's handed it to us here is the way. The way according to the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the apostle comes into verse 12, and he's not unconfident. He's, he is confident that these, these Philippians will actually go this way, which is a whole lot more than we can say about the Galatians and the Corinthians. Isn't that so? Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now what is this? work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? What is this about salvation? That you work it out? Uh, and you work out your own? Isn't it that Christ died for your sins and freely gave you salvation? Well, this depends. Remember, when we talk about salvation, we have to have an object in mind. Saved from what? Well, what's he talking to the Philippians about? Is he talking about them being saved from the penalty due their sins? Not at all. He's talking to them about being saved from a worthless and fruitless Christian life. They need to be saved from that. And here he is working out his own salvation. You remember what he said. This, uh, these have turn of events which seem like they're very terrible to me. Here I am under house arrest. Here I am going the way of the cross. I'm going the way down. I know that this, he told us in Philippians 1.19, For I know this shall turn to my salvation through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now he says, that's my salvation. You see, my salvation's the way down. My salvation's the way of the cross, following the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. Your salvation is the same way. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be careful and be notice it, and notice it and and be mindful of it and here you know with fear and trembling of course this also reminds us immediately of having the fear of the Lord and realizing that this is a very important thing when we come to important moments in our life that's when fear and trembling come out at the most important moments when we want to do well this is where our mind seizes upon us and we're totally in the moment and we're absorbed with the things at hand this is the way we should be about our christian life and he says now you work out your own salvation you can't work out a salvation you don't have then you wouldn't be working it out uh, we, we know about working out uh, we should know about working uh, working it out uh, this this has to do uh, for example in farming you work out your crop uh, you get your, uh, you work out your field. You may have a field in one state, and you want to work it out into another state so that it becomes fruitful. Uh, when you have a problem set before you, you have all the ingredients there, but you've got to find a way through it. You work it out. It's not that you don't have a salvation. You work out your salvation. That is to say, God has provided you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now it's up to you to take them up by the grace of God through faith, and work out 
your own salvation. Now, how can he say do that? Well, he can say do that because he knows that God has predestined each one of us. He's given us a destiny. He's prepared for works for us to walk in, but we need to actually walk in them. We, or we wouldn't be so exhorted. But we are exhorted. And now we say, but I'm so weak. Uh, well, he says, don't even worry about that. You say, well, that's, you know, on the outside, I realize God's planned out history and he's given me these things to walk in, but I'm so weak and errant that I fear I will not walk in those ways. I won't know how I'll be a confused mess and I'll be a weak weenie about it all because I know myself. Well, yeah, and I know you too, and I'm going to agree with all that because uh, I know you generally because I know me generally. But verse 13 stands in the way of this. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God is at work in you. Don't forget the fact that you have the Spirit supply. Just like the apostle said, I know by your prayers and the Spirit supply, this will work out to my salvation. Don't forget that he that began a good work in you, the verse 6 of this very epistle, will continue to perform it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He's more willing to do for us than we are willing to let him do. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, so you'll know his will, you can know his will, you can be filled with the knowledge of his will, and you can do because he will supply what? Dunamis or power to actually execute those works which he prepares. Uh, But how will he do that? He'll do that by grace through faith. And that's the only way he'll do it. And he will hold you accountable for that very thing because after all, all your excuses are eliminated. I, I one time I told a fellow that I tried to manage my businesses. Uh, I try to manage them by excuse elimination. Somebody gives me an excuse, I try to eliminate that excuse, either by pointing out that it's false or by eliminating it if it's true. Uh, God manages by excuse elimination. And so he's eliminated all of our excuses. Therefore, verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Here's how you know, by the way, you have the mind of Christ. Are you murmuring and disputing? Well, then that's not the mind of Christ. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless. Here it is again, comes up again. What's the point? To be blameless and harmless, that is, without offense. Blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. Whose rebuke? Whose rebuke? Without the Lord's rebuke. Don't worry about what men think. Men may rebuke you. Who cares? That you'll be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. When? At the judgment seat of Christ, of course, when all these things will be sorted out. And by the way, you'll be out without rebuke and in a good conscience during this day also, if you'll work out your salvation in this way commended, if we'll just have the mind of Christ. And by the way, friends, if we would just have it together. Well, you're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. We'll continue in Philippians chapter 2 next time. In the meantime, may God bless your meditation in his word here in the epistle to the Philippians.